Hi, I'm Andy Bush. Great to have your company and insight into the darker reaches of your mind for another edition of Scarred for Life, a deep dive into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond, an exploration of the things that have scared you growing up and what those things say about us in the present day. I'm joined as ever by Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the terrifying Scarred for Life books upon which this podcast series is based. And every week we speak to a special guest who will be bringing with them three childhood memories that have literally scarred them for life. This week we are joined by the amazing Andy Nyman. Andy is an award-winning actor, writer, director and magician and has a resume that is the dictionary definition of the word eclectic. As an actor, one of his earliest roles was in the 1989 adaptation of The Woman in Black and he's gone on to play Winston Churchill, a sleazy TV producer in Dead Set and a sheep in Shaun the Sheep. As a writer, he co-wrote Ghost Stories, originally a hugely scary stage play, later turned into the equally terrifying 2017 film of the same name. And as a magician... Andy works closely with Darren Brown in co-creating and co-writing both TV series and one-off specials. It's an honour to have you on, Scarred for Life. Andy, how are you doing? I'm good, fellas. It's an honour to be on, let me tell you. I am a massive fan of the books, and I believe I'm a, I was an early adapter. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were, yeah. Yeah, very early. Oh, the second I even saw the title and saw what it was about, that first book, I was all over it. When was it? About seven years ago it came out, the first? 2017 it came out. The first one was 2017. March the 25th, yeah. 2017. Well, talk about <laughs> Life. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy, what, what was it about the, the kind of content that's in the book, the, these kind of strange, darker childhood memories that you might have previously forgotten? What, what, what draws you towards stuff like that, do you think? Well, it's really interesting that, you know, the first thing is when you describe their books in your intro, Andy, is you refer to them as terrifying. And I... It's no coincidence. I mean, I suspect I'm the oldest of the four of us by quite some chalk, but um, I'm getting a head shake. Oh, oh, I don't know. But it's no coincidence that we're all gentlemen of a certain age, because I think if you're not of this age, those books wouldn't be terrifying. In fact, they'd almost be laughable in, in places. Some of the some of the images, some of the things that are in there sort of thing. I don't really get it. And it's what's so remarkable and perfect about both the title and the books it is a collection of things you know that it's a a crisscross of things that are sitting covered in dust and cobwebs in the back of your mind that you have completely forgotten about until you flick through and go oh fuck oh my god (laughs) that which is a sort of wonderful nostalgic feeling but not necessarily terrifying and then the things you stumble across that you realize oh that properly did me some damage and that's the joy of it is is you know anyone of our age who's british because it's a very british book and i think that's it's sort of there's something very unique and special about the experience of being a child of that time, especially if you were, you know, that the world that you tend to touch on. Is so, I just find it so interesting how different the world was then compared to now. It, it felt so unsanitized what was allowed to be put out and put on so reckless in, in the most brilliant way that was... <laughs> if it was if it was somebody's taste then it was sort of all right you'd put it on one of the three channels they'd get it made or on the into a comic or onto a lollipop and uh, there you go wallop 
Well, I mean, we're chatting to you now on, on, on a video call, Andy, and we can see into what I think is your lounge. And you've got, I, I always think the books appeal to people who kind of collect unusual things, whether it's in their mind or, or physically. And you can see behind you, you have a, a very interesting collection of what appears to be a set of handcuffs in a, in a frame yes. there. And you're, you seem to be a collector of curiosities. I am. This is actually my study, yeah. So that wall there that you're looking at is... Um, there's a little haunted mansion thing. Next to that is a numbered replica of the Golden Gun, which wow, comes apart wow. and does everything it needs <laughs> to do. Next to that or above that is indeed a set of handcuffs um, that was given to me by... There's a brilliant... Um, he was an es- escapologist called Jonathan Goodwin. I think he's known... Is he the daredevil on... Um, uh, I can't quite think what his, what his uh, Instagram name is. Um, he was the most, and I'd worked with him for donkey's years, uh, you know, as a friend on his early TV shows. And there, and he had a terrible accident a couple of years ago um, that left him paralysed from the waist down. Oh, and man. he's he's now, incre- I mean, he is incredible and inspiring in terms of, his attitude and how he trains people and and teaches hypnosis and he's really really amazing anyway he sent me those bless him he was in a show in the west end and i i'd worked with him over a number of years and i went to see him and afterwards he said what do you think and i was like um well i'll tell you and and had some thoughts and some notes and then he sent me a message a couple of months later saying i've done all of those notes and They've really made a big difference. Oh, and wow. about a month later, I received these beautiful framed golden handcuffs with, with love from Jonathan on them. So that is Amazing. absolutely in pride of place. Um, so what's it like for uh, for a magician or a hypnotist, go- hypnotist going to see another magician or hypnotist show? Is, is there an element of someone trying to work out how things are done or is it you're both sharing within the art? How does that work? No, it's very, it's very... I'm sort of in a unique position, really, because I create and direct and write. So I have that head. But I also, the thing that I love more than anything else, I never go and see an act hoping to sort of work it out and hoping to giggle my way through how shit it is. I actually go there wanting to be absolutely blown away and full because I love magic so much. I love it. And very often when you see something that is nearly very good, the the shifts that are required to make it very good aren't huge. It just requires the right pair of outside eyes to go, you know what, if you did that there and not that there and you did that, that would hide what you're really doing and maybe start with that and finish with that. And suddenly you can just transform things. But then, you know, what's it's that's no different to working in an edit. That's no different to so if you know, I'm very proudly in that first woman in black. That was my first TV show, which I and I'm not in the scene I'm about to refer to. So I can say with absolutely no arrogance whatsoever. I think that the key jump scare in that film and I won't say what it is in case people haven't seen it, is one of the most terrifying jump scares and terrifying moments in absolutely anything. I mean, it's a truly remarkable piece of work, that moment. But when you go, when you look at that and see how it's pieced together as a magic trick, the rhythm of it 
and the way it works is absolutely exactly the same as doing what I've just described about watching a magic trick and going, oh, maybe make that a bit shorter. And do you th- yeah. have you thought about saying that there instead? And that's what an edit is, really. And you just, it's just a zillion magic tricks, one after another. <laughs> and you're hoping that the uber magic trick is that your audience go away thinking that was good, as opposed to, yeah, got a bit bored, you know. So are magicians are open to, to constructive criticism or, or like that? They're an, or ex- just pride they're an extraordinary way? breed, magicians. Uh, it's a very unique art in the respect that. You could walk into Hamley's tomorrow or into a toy shop and buy a Marvin's magic trick. It's brilliant stuff, Marvin's magic, and it's very easily explained. And within 20 minutes, you could do a trick that if you did to your mates, they'd go, oh, my God, that's incredible. You're brilliant. And they credit you with as much skill as they would... Maybe not David Blaine, but people are on telly. So it's a very strange art mm. uh, because it because in some respects you can achieve greatness in inverted commas very quickly with very little skill. It's what it's one of the unique things about that. You can't do that with an instrument. You can't pick up a guitar and suddenly think, I'm gonna go bought this guitar today, I'm gonna go to the pub later and sing a couple of songs for everybody. Like, Fucking hell. You know, you can't do that, but you can do that with a magic trick that's one of the really wonderful things about it but it's also one of the terrible things about it because it makes everybody think that they are filled with greatness so very often there's no there's no discrepancy in people giving their opinions i'll right. get you know when a new Darren show comes out a new Darren stage show I, i'll get notes from magicians but people i don't know Oh, really? Unsolicited notes? Uh, completely unsolicited. I was like, yeah, I like that bit. I didn't think that didn't work for me. And it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible. Um, so that is, that's one of the downsides of it. Slash, I kind of love it as well because it's mad. It was the Magic Circle elections yesterday, so there's a wow, new audience wow. who's wonderful. Wow. I see. Yeah, yeah. Marvin Glass of Marvin's Magic is now president of the Magic I'm Circle. instantly sort of imagining a dark room and candles and a you know the kind of black balls <laughs> going into a bag <laughs> shady yeah. ballots yeah i mean there is the, there is last night there's always a ritual slaughter <laughs> and it was good because they've got the tarpaulin down so it, meant it was an easy clean up afterwards um but you know the other thing that's joyous about the magic and the magic circle and again p- pulling it back to scarred for life it's almost impossible not to time travel to David Nixon, Paul Daniels yeah, show, yeah. You know, to go back to those the bunker booth or whatever formative, it was called. Formative moments. Dave's got mm. his hand up. Have you got your hand up? Yes, I'm going to ask the question if that's oh. okay. Well, just very briefly, when when you plan a new show, do you think we've got to find something that's never been done before and try and do it and try and achieve it? I mean, that's, just, I mean, how that's innovative. That's a really good question. Um, Of course, if you could create magic tricks that had never, ever been done or thought of before, that would be the most wonderful goal. And on occasions, we have absolutely achieved that. We've definitely, I mean, there was a thing in the last Darren stage show that had never, ever, ever been done before. And it was was extraordinary to see every night. Um, Funnily enough, we are about to open a show in the West End called Unbelievable that is me. It's written by... Darren, me, 
and Andrew O'Connor, who is the third cog in the wheel. And we've all written it and directed it. And part of our big thing within that show, Darren's not in it. Um, they're all actor, uh, all actor musicians who are in it. Okay. Uh, was It was an entirely new way of doing a magic show. Is it possible to do a magic show without magicians? Is it possible to do a magic show that doesn't have a big male ego at the centre of it? And I don't mean that in detriment to, you know, that's just generally what it is. You know, you've got a big yeah. male, for, for the most part, there are some brilliant female magicians, but for the most part, uh, you know, you have a strong male personality in the centre of it. Even if it's a sort of, there are six magicians, four of them will be men. So we, we wanted to just kind of throw it up in the air and try and do something entirely new. And we've achieved some of that. I've no idea. Audiences seem to love it. But who knows? Who knows how successful it will be or not? I remember reading about um, jazz musicians back in the early days in America playing with like handkerchiefs over their hands so people couldn't see what they were doing or how they were. Oh, I love that! So with with magician with with magic, is there a way of protecting the integrity of no. uh, a trick? You you can't protect it from Andy. The theft is beyond belief. Really? Really? Oh my days! Oh yeah, it's absolutely disgraceful. <laughs> That's so bad. It, it, but it, do you know what? We're going to spend an hour talking about all of this and not the, the meat and potatoes that we want to get to. But yeah, it's well, outrageous. Say, it's an outrageous. I've got, I've got friends who are in the comedy circuit and it's disgusting. Like, like It's almost like they can't open their mouths without someone writing something down and using it in the set. I guess it's the same with any kind of creative wow. in that sense. Yeah. It's pretty prevalent, yeah. I think, isn't it? Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Well, it's harder to create. We all know that. Yeah. But yeah. Well, but I love it. Let's hope there's no such thing as AI magic in the future, because that's all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. Well, um, Andy, you've just alluded to it there. Let, let's get down to the meat and potatoes of this little, uh, you know, bit of psychology we have on this podcast. Where you, you you come armed with three things that have scarred you for life as a kid. Could we please get your first scar then on this uh, particular episode, Andy? Yeah, I had to really think about these. Um, because there are lots of them and actually going flicking through your books really helped again today, just going through. Um, the first one is a bit of a left field one and it was a TV series called Within These Walls, uh, which starred, I think, I believe it was an ITV show. It was about 1974 or something. I don't know, something like that. About that, I think, yeah. And I th believe it was about a female prison. Is that right? Yeah. Is that what it was? I know it was about a prison, but it was, yeah, Googie Withers They star. do say it was yeah. one of the inspirations for Prisoner right, Cell Block yeah. H, but I don't know how true that was. Do they? I'm yeah. sure. So so you had, you already had that kind of something that lay beneath an awful lot of drama, irrespective of whether it was sitcom, com there's something about the way studio stuff was shot that automatically makes you feel off kilter when you look at that stuff. There's something about the look of the sets. It's a bit like, what what's that term? Um, un, uncanny Valley, is yeah. it, or something? Yeah. yeah. Is that the thing? So it, it's almost like a real-world version of that CG Uncanny Valley. You know everything you're looking at is artificial. And there's something about the look of the... And I love it. I love that 
But nevertheless, there is something beneath it that is disconcerting. So that's the first thing that... It, does it remind you a little bit? Did you see the League of the, the Inside Number Nine episode about Krampus, where they they were kind of filming yes, almost absolutely like a live, brilliant. Absolutely similar kind brilliant. of Perfect. vibe of unsettling yeah. studio work? Perfect there, evocation you know I mean? of that. Yeah. So I remember this one series, uh, this one episode, and I didn't used to watch it a lot. It just happened to be on, and I was watching it, and it was something about. And again, this is a weird scarring. This is not like we're not leaping into horror. This is into something completely different. But there was something about one of the women had been smuggling drugs into the ho- into the prison or something. So head of the prison, I'm probably misremembering all of this, Googie Withers decides she will go to this person's house and talk to their wife, parent, whatever it was that, that was at the house. So she goes to the house, and my memory of it is it's a sort of Richmond, rather well-to-do, upper-middle-class house. And she's greeted by this sort of almost Hyacinth Bouquet-esque, rather (laughs) posh lady who takes her in and says, you know, and she introduces herself and says, oh, I'm head of the prison, and I need to talk to you about your daughter, girlfriend, son, whatever it was. So this woman says, oh, of course. Well, why don't you come in and we'll have a cup of tea and uh, and we'll talk things over. So she comes in, she gets tea, tea and biscuits, and they're sort of nibbling away. And and after about five minutes of Googie Withers doing this sort of chat with her and start wanting to talk about the fact she's smuggling drugs, Googie Withers starts to feel weird and woozy. And you're getting this sort of, you know, fisheye lensy point of view. (laughs) (laughs) of Googie Withers looking around the room at the woman who's been giving her this tea and biscuits and the woman says to her ah well what you've actually eaten are hash cakes <laughs> wow. wow okay <laughs> which which is so sort of gentle and innocuous in our modern world but <clears throat> I was so disturbed by the idea of someone sort of because I was, I was so scared of drugs. I still sort of am. I've never done anything. I've never been drunk in my <laughs> life, let alone taken a drug. Yeah. So I've always been very scared of the idea of being out of control. And maybe it's because of Googie Withers. <laughs> but I was so freaked out by the idea that this well-to-do, it wasn't like some, you know, skanky, horrible owls in a state where everybody looks like you think oh yeah there's horrible stuff going you know ridiculous (laughs) but it was sort of you know a posh normal and it absolutely fucking terrified me the idea that you know she'd (laughs) drugged her without her knowing that you know no no idea that it was like a bit of weed as opposed to you know heroin she'd injected it with um so that i mean i realize that's quite an ex quite a bizarre answer but that is my first scar it, what what is it that's so scary about a fisheye lens it really is an, oh. uh, uh, an unsettling um camera angle isn't it why 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 is fisheye lens so scary well i've i've sort of thought about that a lot because my second scar without leaping ahead too much is absolutely fisheye it it, it involves a fisheye lens and there is something about for those who don't know who are listening and i'm sure you know most people will it's just 
it, it's a very wide lens that curves round. So the middle of it is sort of a bit bigger in focus than it should be. And everything else around it, it's like you're looking through a glass bowl or a, or, or a, a fish bowl. You know, yeah. everything else curls around and is distorted. So it's it has within it not only a distortion of the world, but it tells you it's very often used as a sort of POV. You know, it's sort of I've taken the drugs and now I'm looking at everybody and woo, everything's woozy and horrible. Or yeah. in the case of my second one, which we'll get to, you know, you suddenly realize, holy shit the world is different from what I thought it was. It's not normal. And you're sort of looking at normal things in a very abnormal way. So I think that's part of it. That's the thing. I think that's the, back in the 60s, 70s, the 80s is when it starts to change because technology advances. But I've got to say, I miss the days of fisheye lenses and mad filters and that old kind of visual shorthand for I'm going off my idea or I'm terrified. Do you remember the old filter where there would be one image in the centre of the screen and about six rotating round clockwise? Oh, of course, like a kaleidoscope. kaleidoscope. And that was also when someone had been drugged or was pissed. That doesn't happen in real life, obviously. Oh. I mean, I've been pissed. I can, no. I can guarantee you, Andy, you don't see a fisheye lens, you don't see the kaleidoscope. Yeah. Yeah. But, You're not missing anything, Andy. You're not missing anything. It, well, the other one... The other one that, that I really love, and it was used in so many Jalo trailers, is you'll get a sort of, you know, it'd be an image of you, and then everything sort of freezes, goes red around you, but you'll go sort of oh, yellow. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. Of, and then maybe you'll move and there'll be a bit of a sort of, a sort of tomorrow people-esque <laughs> dragging of the image. Sol Solarization, that that's the thing. That used to freak me out. Very good. Some, um, it would be a yes. freeze frame or something and like you say the, the background would go red the face would turn yellow but really kind of low res low detail horrible yeah. horrible very top of the pops yeah. they used to use all these but, these kind of techniques on top of the pops absolutely. during pans of people absolutely yeah yeah Dave I think the thing I miss about those those days is like you say about the sets that complete artificiality yeah. of the sets and everybody was accepted. It was basically like a play on yeah. the oh, TV. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, like nowadays they film in real houses and in real backdrops. But in well, those days, there's, there's a sort of weird modern version of it where you know, if you watch Hollyoaks, <laughs> yeah. it's so fake in terms of the. I mean, it might be in real buildings, but there's something, and actually the street as well. There's, we've sort of gone the other way. High death is so brutal. The way yeah. it shoots, the the clarity is so unforgiving. The detail is so unforgiving, but in a strange way, it also gives you that very strange artificiality that mm. the low res used to give you. So it, it's it, we've come so far, and yet we've moved nowhere in a weird way. It's weird. I I, I interviewed Quentin Tarantino for work about four or five years ago. Okay, you can't me, you can't just drop that. <laughs> that's a name. That's what a clang of a name drop. You can't he, just do that, and we all sit here like that's sort of normal. Oh yeah, how normal. was Quentin? 
That's but yeah, amazing. He's, he's a great guy. He's a great. No, but he was telling me that he watches all of his stuff on VHS because he still likes to adjust the tracking for every oh. single movie that he watches to create yeah. a particular kind of way of watching it. And it's that kind of being able to interact with the medium that I guess you don't have if we're, with super high definition. Oh yeah. Well, we've had a projector at home for years that we watch films from onto a screen, and and it's it must be fifteen twenty years old. So it was quite sort of, wasn't like fancy pants when we got it. It was at the cheaper end of the range, but it was like really good. Well, it's now things have moved on so far. We don't want to change this because it is a little bit grainy. Yeah. It is yeah. a little bit like you're at the pictures when you were a kid. It isn't. I don't want the motion sickness of this uber crisp image. I don't want to see 4K yeah, totally nostril hairs. That. I don't want to see people's spots. I want to no. pretend that Clint Eastwood was no. quite a smooth-skinned guy. <laughs> <laughs> Dave? Actually, Steve will agree with me on this. We we both bought a Series 1 of a Sweeney on Blu-ray when it first came out, and they'd cleaned it up uh... so much that we just didn't like it anymore. It was just the one particular scene I, I, I'm thinking of is the, there's a scene where a guy comes out of a courtroom and he's talking on the steps, he's being interviewed on this court, and in the cleaned up Blu-ray, he's just standing yeah. on the steps of a block of flats and it just looks terrible. <laughs> so I think we both basically packed off the Blu-ray version. Yeah. We've got the old grey, yeah. the, 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 more, the more unfiltered, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the DVD. I had a really again. disappointing thing recently. I popped, I say recently, it's probably two years ago. I was at home and I popped, I saw the Sweeney was on on like Talking TV or something. Good old Talking TV. Oh, what yeah. a brilliant channel. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So I pop it on and fuck me, it's an episode that's all shot round where I wow. live. Wow. I, I don't, I mean, literally, it's the one where it's the sort of siege in the travel agents. Oh, yeah. Don't yeah, know if that's you've a seen great one. Sensational act. It is literally the, the, the surrounding three streets where I am. And oh, I wow. never, ever go on to the sort of the how the, the association of sort of neighborhood watch thing, you know, where they're always emailing you about, we're going to have a street fair. Have you noticed the bins are? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but I thought, you know what? This is amazing. So I, I sent a little link to everyone saying, you got to see this. It's all our local area. It's absolutely amazing. It's like 1974, all the different shops. Not one person replied. No one gave oh. a shit. I just thought, oh. I was God. absolutely gutted. I was so excited when I saw it. Some of the crap we get in our, our streets Facebook group, I'd, I'd, be, I'd kill for some intel like that. Andy, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Rather than stuff about yeah. bins or the, the, this kid doesn't want his trike anymore. It's out the front if you want it. I had a very yeah. similar experience with the liver beds because when I'm writing or drawing, I'll just bung YouTube on in the background because I don't need to concentrate or watch. Yeah. And a lot of the time it's old adverts and continuity. And a BBC One continuity trailer from about 1979, 80 or something came up. And it was tonight on BBC One, nationwide and blah, 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 blah. And the live beds. And I kind of glanced across and went, oh, live beds. The advert was, they were filming over the road from me, mum and dad's street. And I had the Proustian rush, but when I finished for the night, I went on YouTube and found every single YouTube uh, Live Abeds episode I could find and dragged the slider across. And I found so many episodes that were filmed around the corner from where I grew up. And wow. it was uh, to see the old shops and to see the layouts. And yeah. there used to be a one, a one screen classic cinema over the road from my mum and dad's. And it was just a lovely evening of just wallowing in that old 
nostalgia. Yeah. Did you did you put that into a, a local WhatsApp group and get no reply as well? <laughs> Unfortunately <Steve>. not. No. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Dave. Yeah, the, the, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to outdo you now, Andy, about the Quentin Tarantino thing. I was in Los Angeles. Oh, here we go. And uh, uh, basically, I was sitting in Los Angeles, and then when I came back, a friend of mine wanted to see this really arty film about a couple wandering across the breadth of Los Angeles. Los Angeles, it's like 100 miles. It's 88 cities, 100 miles. And I watched this film, and it was like one square block of the rough and round oh. where I stayed. And so <laughs> it just reminded me how artificial these things are. It's the same setup, it's the same street, oh, yeah. and shot. It's shot a different way, so... If you do see something in your neighbourhood, it'll be just your neighbourhood and that's it. Yeah. Well, uh, Andy, you alluded to it then with the, talking about the fisheye lens. Let, let's move on to your second scar then uh, okay. in, in this week's episode. So, um, and I, I'm just going to grab something which will remind me, uh, give me exactly the date that this happened. So bear with me once. Because uh, I wrote about this uh, in the... Uh, we did when ghost stories was at the theater we did a big souvenir brochure and i wrote an article about this thing okay so uh it was an episode of thriller the brian clemens show um now the title sequence of thriller is is absolutely scarring scarring beyond belief it's yeah you know it's so simple. There were a few. There was Armchair Thriller, which I think is what I said it was. It wasn't. It was Thriller. There was Armchair Thriller, which is terrifying. I, you know, I urge you to go online and find the titles. It's all on YouTube. Armchair Thriller has this terrifying title music, and it's a, it's a shadow sitting into an armchair. Holy shit. <laughs> it's wretched. Thriller was, a, I believe, a precursor to Armchair Thread. They were all written by Brian Clemens. I mean, what an incredible man. What an incredible output, yeah. you know, that, that he had in his career. Anyway, I would have been... Uh, so this was 1974, Saturday, 28th of January, 1974, at 8.20. Wow. I know that because I bought the thriller dvd set that network put out that's all of the all of the thrillers and it gives you on the back the dates they were transmitted so i literally know exactly where i was and um, how old i was so i was at home mum and dad had gone out and my sister karen is older than me a couple of years older than me and we used to have this babysitter called mrs kempster but we always called mrs k who was a very lovely old lady but karen used to run rings around her so karen <laughs> said uh oh mum and dad said we're allowed to stay up um and karen was always really brave really she'd watched loved horror even as a kid i fucking hated it <laughs> i couldn't watch anything and so she said oh um we, we're all mum and dad have said we're allowed to watch this thing thriller and uh, it starts at 20 past eight, and then we'll go to bed after that. So Mrs. K was like, oh, okay, if that's what they've said, that's fine, you know. So um, we start watching this thing, and it was an episode called Only a Scream Away. Ooh. And it's Hayley Mills, Carrie Collins, Joyce Carey, and David Warbeck. All right. I know that because I found I found the TV Times listing of it when I knew the date. All right. Wow. So 
It starts with this couple in a little country church getting married. And they're kind of walking out of there, out of the church, and you see everyone, oh, you know, it's all very English and very sort of country and nice, in inverted commas, and safe. <laughs> and they're all throwing um, confetti. And suddenly the bride screams and she's covered in blood. Whoa. Someone, someone sort of chucked blood all over her. Cue the fisheye lens. Cue suddenly cutting to every, all these sort of guests who super close up, who all now look terrifying. Cute screaming bride, hard cut to fisheye lens and the theme tune, which is basically five wretchedly discordant notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, and again, look look up the, the, the theme tune. I was out of that room like a shot. Wow like a shot uh, and i'd have been when was that 74 I, i'd have been like eight seven or eight and and when i found and that absolutely absolutely did me in and then when i found this dvd set that came out which we're only talking about i don't know 12 years ago 13 years ago or something I was filming somewhere, so I used to take my little DVD player on the train and watch things. I thought, brilliant, I'll work through that series. I wonder if I'll come across the the one that had scared me. And it was like the third one in the first series. And it started on the church. I had to turn it off. Wow. <laughs> I went absolutely cold. I mean... Cold sweat. Triggering. Cold sweat, yeah. You know, there I was, man in my 40s at that point, having this recall, I mean, visceral, physical recall, a bit sh properly a bit shaky, cold sweat, seeing this thing. And then bit by bit, I forced myself to watch it. And my God... <laughs> I mean, it really did a number on me when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, that was a proper scar. We were our own guests in the first episode talking about the three things that scarred us for life. And I always bring this up. There's a rabies public information film that... Tra and when I don't use this word lightly. It traumatised me as a child. Rabies means yeah. death. The one where an old woman brings or tries to smuggle a cat through customs and it's intercut with genuine grainy footage of a rabies victim in his death throes thrashing about on a bed oh my god but every god. time it cuts to this victim there's a <laughs> psycho noise i can't watch it as a 53 year old and i try i try regularly i watch the first five seconds and have to i throw me phone across the room so i i complete <laughs> i understand completely the effect that that had on you this afternoon to kind of brush up my memory of the thriller titles. I went on YouTube. There's a big playlist of thriller episodes. It is horrible. Not only that, but the, the masterstroke of this title sequence is it changes every single episode. If 
if the episode yeah. is set on a farm, it will show horrible fisheye lens photographs of a farm machinery and gates yeah. distorted. If it's set on a mansion, <laughs> it will show those pictures of a mansion. So it oh, immediately yeah. puts you on edge for the entire episode. And you're, ab- you're absolutely right, Stephen. It is a masterstroke because what that does, whether by accident or design, is the implication is anywhere is creepy. Yeah. Anywhere is terrifying. It doesn't have yeah. to be a scary mansion. The fact it's, you know, one of Brian Clements's master strokes when creating stuff was it was set within the world that you recognised. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's a suburban house. It's like your mates. It's a school. It's anywhere. Shove that lens on it and a jarring tone. And it means nowhere is yeah. safe. I think I think the thing that gets me is the because it's blood yeah, red on the sides, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, it's, it's like the fish oil, and it's that music that goes dum dum. Oh yeah. That's just been, like you say, it's discordance. But I think title sequences back then were just brilliant. I mean, I know Steve's got his fears of uh, Shadow Series yeah. Two title. Yeah. But, uh, um, I, I the one I didn't like was there was a series called Lady Killers. Oh yeah, fronted by Robert Morley, and I was still traumatized by him eating his poodles in Theatre of Death. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, that, that that was quite somber music and like the the, the noose and things like that. That just I really miss out. a title sequence. Do you know what we? Mm. I'll tell you what we watched recently that had a brilliant title sequence that we always used to watch and enjoy was um, Hijack on apple tv i don't know if you've seen no. it it's got a fan- it's supposed to be very good oh it's a great series great series mm. and it's got a terrific title sequence but look at succession brilliant title sequence you know it's just i love a theme tune and i love a title yeah. sequence well let's talk about that for a second because it's interesting one thing i mean i watched to, to, like steve was saying to brush up on this i watched a, an episode of thriller called uh, somebody at the top of the stairs or something on the train home from work this evening. It was absolutely terrifying. The, the oh, it is terrifying, me. that one. It's, it's got it's, Help Me written on a door. It was like, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, and is that is that the one that's got the... Um, so it's the sort of staircase up and then a landing and then there's the other staircase. Yeah, it looks like every B&B we stayed in when I was <laughs> a kid. Fuck me, it's parents. frightening. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> scary. Yeah. But that, you know, in what you've done with your, your stage work and, and ghost story, etc., how important is music and how, how, how oh, much can music evoke fear in people? Oh, it's, it's essential, as we all know. I mean, it's, it's absolutely make or break. I mean, brilliant stories of Carpenter test screening Halloween with, before he'd written the music and it just scoring nothing. Yeah. And then he went away and wrote that stuff and put it in and it transformed it. You know, the, the um, our composer on uh, the Ghost Stories film, Frank Hilfman, did the most amazing job. I mean, he's really, you know, he's like a cross between John Barry and Morricone. I mean, he can do anything. It's absolutely marvellous. So it, a sound design yeah, and music is just wonderful. And, of course, and, do, and do, you, do you leave them to do that or do you give them instructions? There's a real mix. There's a real mix of, you know, when you're editing a film, what you start by doing in the edit is, you know, you'll create temp track. And that will often be you'll find pieces of music that are sort of it, you know, from other films right. or, or from other, you know, you'll find 
as it was there were pieces you know the reason that that we found frank was um there's a brilliant israeli film called big bad wolves that frank had done the score for and that was that one of the last films fright fest showed the when the empire was still like the biggest screen in europe you know 1500 seats or whatever it was my god the film is amazing but his music so um we used pieces of his music as temp track and then you're finding other bits and bobs and it's and then and then you're going to the composer with it's sort of this or it's sort of like that you know like a mood board type thing exactly right music exactly right and then they'll come back and frank was a brilliant collaborator because you know Jeremy's actually very musical. Jeremy plays keyboards. I don't, but I'm arrogant enough to believe I have the most extraordinary musical ability that I can communicate, <laughs> even though I don't. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's really, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to explore that. And then go, I mean, going to the recording of your soundtrack was one of the most amazing days of my life. Me and Jeremy together as, you know, we'd been friends since we were 15, obsessed with all this stuff, going to air studios with a, a complete, an entirely string orchestra of 43 people, I think, 43 people, 44 musicians, to hear the music that has been composed for your horror film played yeah. and recorded for your soundtrack. And honestly, whether you've seen the film or not, people listening to this, if you go on Spotify or listen to Frank Ilfman's score for ghost stories, the music is absolutely remarkable. It's brilliant. So that that was unbelievable, you know, a real blessing. Has the music ever surprised you once it's been added on? Has it ever made you see a scene in a different way than you? Oh, yeah. And one sat, you know, a sound effect that you can choose. And it's it's really, there's a scene in the film that we decided we wanted to do as one take where Martin Freeman is, is woken up by sort of creaking and goes to explore what it is. And there's a sound in that that to this day, if I watch it, makes my stomach lurch. I know which one it is. Um, I, I think I know exactly which... <laughs> that you mean it was horrible <laughs> yeah and it's so funny it was about the 10th sound we tried because you're like it's not right it's it's just not alive enough there's something a bit muted about that can we try something else can we try when something? you say try a sound though what do you mean though? like a note is it a discordant note or, or a sound no 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 I'm, or so, the, the, so this was a sound it was a sound of something being smashed actually is, is what it was right and and it was a moment that just wasn't working. So you're going to sound effects and saying, can we hear that? Can we hear that? No, that. And there's 5,000 sounds that you could use there. And, you know, suddenly you're just waiting for, no, no. Ooh, can you put that in? Can we see what that's like? Make it a bit louder? You look at it and you're like, no, but it's nearly right, isn't it? You can tell. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Oh, that, that, that. Try that, and then you listen. Can you make? Can you distort the end of it a tiny bit? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and it's amazing. It's it's an every single thing is a decision like that. Every single second. Yeah. 
Uh, well, Andy, let's go for your final scar then uh, in this week's episode. What are you going to go for? Final scar is the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool. Uh, wow. On the North Pier. <laughs> Fantastic. So I was a very scaredy cat kid. Um, and I sort of loved Doctor Who. Pertwee was my doctor. Loved Doctor Who slash didn't really like it because it was scary. And we'd gone to Blackpool and the Doctor Who exhibition was on and I knew it was on and I sort of said, I really want to go, I really want to go, I really want to go see it. So um, I remember very, very clearly two two things about it. Uh, my dad and my sister, brave sister, Karen, who I've talked about already, uh, we all went in and at the bottom of the stairs was a Cyberman. And I remember freaking out and thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this. So I held my dad's hand very, very tightly and sort of snuggled into him quite. I'm not making this up as my my mouth to God's ears. This is true. And I would snuggle into him quite a lot as we were going round. And I, I sort of peeked at a lot of it and not much of it. Obviously, the reason I really was in there was to see what a Dalek looked like up close. <laughs> you get to see that, but I didn't really want to look. And you see it, it's scared. And there's a sound effect and you go out at the end. And we got out at the end. And as I got out at the end, there was my dad and sister. And I had gone round holding hands with a stranger. <laughs> I sort of got separated from my dad. <laughs> And was holding this guy's hand and snuggling into it, but you're in the dark, so I didn't really realise, and I was little. <laughs> so it was the... <laughs> horror within a horror, within a horror. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It's all... Why is Doctor Who so scary, though? Why, why do you think it has such a legacy of, of fear for kids across the UK? It felt like there was nothing like it, really, when you were a kid. Something about it being on the BBC on a Saturday night that was family and cosy. It's very hard for a modern generation to understand the power, the unifying power of two channels which or three channels. You can't understand that you'd go into school the next day and every single person, teachers, kids, yeah. watched the same thing. Yeah. How that how that you the unifying experience nationally of that and when you lose that that you sort of lose part of what your national identity is and what community is it's a massively important part which is one of the absolutely heartbreaking things about watching a government try and dismantle the bbc yeah bit by bit yep. try and make make it something that isn't commercially viable or do the same with with channel 4 try and dismantle something that is an essential part of who we are as a nation. It's the same with the NHS. You know, it's it's heartbreaking because it's not just because the brilliant thing about the BBC is it, it never felt like it was just about money. It was about creating stuff. So Doctor Who felt brave and extraordinary and daring and frightening properly frightening yeah. because it was created by brilliant people at those effects and those sounds the cutting edge 
literally the cutting edge that that theme tune was was an innovation in the the whole notion of how music was created you know the yeah. impact of that within the bbc sounds department to check you know you you wouldn't have you, you probably wouldn't have synthesizers and you know it was it, it was remarkable people boundless energy and and a sort of mad uncensorship that went with it you know to just try and achieve new things so it's a it's a very giddy mix of what makes it so powerful i've got uh three memories of the doctor's exhibition because i used to go every year the last year i ever went to blackpool was the year they stopped doing it uh but my first memory is how steep the stairs down were absolutely yeah they were incredibly steep uh because uh, you, you go in through the yeah, tardis exactly and you get it. now the, the the second memory is there was a bit where you go in it and the, the the monsters are in glass cases at the side like there's a tunnel down the middle and you go down the, the glass cases and the monsters at the side they had a bit where it dog legged to the right and they'd set it up so a dalek would come round the corner wow is that no you remember i this? don't remember that but i'm marvelous he, he, he had his eyes closed for quite a bit of it i was snuggling into a stranger <laughs> at that of course but they they had it set up so a dark it was a white dark i think it was and it, it would glide into into view as you were walking down the corridor and this little kid came screaming it must be you andy came screaming down the corridor running back towards the steep entrance he was terrified and I was obviously I was terrified too, but I had to. Then my third memory is I had to get through to get to that target yeah. book stand at the end, the little stall. That that book stand because that, that was that was my heaven. That was like every target, the gorgeous Chris Achilles covers. It was phenomenal, yeah. and I had to get to that. Bit. I I yeah. too went to the Doctor Who exhibition once. Um, <laughs> the only time maybe mum and dad went to Blackpool as a child. I don't remember the, the rest of the day. Literally, do not remember the entire day. I just remember the Doctor Who exhibition because that's all I wanted to go for. I just badgered them and badgered them. So am I right in thinking you went through the TARDIS doors at the top? Right. So yes. it felt like you went into the TARDIS. That's I, it. I, I, my memory, you'd go into the TARDIS and the TARDIS was sort of the ticket office when you went yeah. inside. And then you'd go down that perilous. So I, I <laughs> so I'm so excited. I'm, this must be about 1977. So I'm about six or seven years old. And just going through the TARDIS doors was just so exciting for me. So my me, me dad, my me, mum's me yeah. got no interest whatsoever. She's not asked. So she just carries the coats and the bags and stays at the top of the stairs. Me and my dad go inside. So he pays the money, whatever it was. We go through the TARDIS doors and I just remember being so excited. Then confronted, like Dave said, I'm glad my memory isn't cheating. It was the steepest set of stairs I'd ever seen in my life. The problem <laughs> yeah. was I remember the music and the noises that were coming from the doors to the exhibition were so terrifying. I burst into tears. I, I had a complete meltdown. Yeah. Basically, it, I, I seem to remember it was some kind of alien music and murmuring not screams, but horrible monster sounds. And I literally had a meltdown. But my dad was like the most gentle man ever. It took a lot for him to lose his temper. But I kind of started going back up the stairs 
out and he, I just remember him saying, vividly remember him saying, I've paid for the bloody thing, so we're going to see the bloody thing. And he grabbed me by the arm and dragged <laughs> me into the exhibition as I'm screaming. But I can't remember the exhibition itself. All I remember is, as soon as I walked in, the terror went instantly, like a switch had gone off in my head, yeah. and I was in awe. I remember seeing the monsters in their glass cases and just thinking, oh my God, it's like I'm in Doctor Who. Can't remember the rest of it. But like Dave said, I remember the gift shop and remember my dad buying me a little Doctor Who badge for being brave. And it was just one of the best yeah. days of my life. Uh, it was amazing. I mean, it's an ama- it's a profound thing within it all, isn't it? That is, if only you could take that lesson forward into your life all the time, which is so often the things you are terrified of are just nowhere near as frightening. You can cope fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. worth i mean that's that's part and parcel of course of what makes horror such an enduring art form is yeah. that it you know it's a great reminder of you'll you get through the other end of it yeah you'll you can the, get through it it's all right you know even if it's a, a treacherous staircase you can get through it exactly. you can get down it <laughs> even if it takes your dad going a bloody pain <laughs> we're going <laughs> Well, Andy, that's fantastic. There we are then, the three scars within these walls, the uh, opening sequence or just thriller itself sounds absolutely terrifying and the uh, hugely um, traumatising Doctor Who exhibition at Blackpool. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been brilliant to chat to you. We know you're a busy man. You've got you've got two really interesting projects on the go at the yes. moment, uh, Andy. Just tell people a little bit about that then. Uh, so the first thing is the uh, show I alluded to earlier, which is called Unbelievable, uh, which is written by Derham Brown, myself, and Andrew O'Connor, who is the third cog in our wheel. And we have all written it and directed it. Uh, it's just been on in Manchester and it's about to open in the West End. And it's it's a brand new way of doing a magic show. It's a terrific night out. Um, if you go to unbelievablelive.com, I believe it is. I think it is. All the details are there. Uh, I know it's booking very, very well. So uh, if it's something you fancy, uh, and you're in London, it's at the Criterion Theatre. So that's Amazing. that. And then the other thing is um, myself and my ghost stories co-writer, co-director of the play and co-director of the movie with me is Jeremy Dyson. And we've just written our first novel, which is called The Warlock Effect, which is a set in 1950s Soho and is about uh, Britain's most popular magician, a guy called Louis Warlock, whose real name is Ludwig Weinschenk, who fled the Nazis and came over on a, not exactly the kinder transport, but a not dissimilar thing. And he has a penchant for publicity stunts, which brings him to the attention of the British Secret Service, who say there's a little something going on uh, in the Czech Republic that we need some help with will you fight for your country for us and he says yes and it leads him on a terrible journey so that is the warlock effect which is that sounds amazing oh i'm very proud to say it's a sunday times must read and we're about to once unbelievable has opened we're about to start adapting it for tv um which and then we have to write a second book and blah 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 and then I've got acting stuff that I've just finished and an acting thing that I'll be doing in theatres next year. But for now, they're the two big definite things. 
One very quick question about um, um, the the stage show. When you when you when you do a stage show like that, uh, and you're the writer of it, do you, do you go in the way like someone who owns a restaurant might go in and just check all the customers are happy, and then go back out again, or, or just leave it, it be? What do you no, do? No, it's a, once it's up and running, we will. You know, I'll probably go in every four or five weeks and see it and check yeah. that. To use your analogy, check that all the recipes are the same recipes you left and aren't being altered by the chefs who decided, you know what, this would be better if I put a bit more vinegar in it. Because I like vinegar. Yeah, so that you do. And you also, you do have to just check that the audience is having a good time. Because, look, I'm always a huge believer of people can, it's hard, earning a living is hard, especially now. Paying your rent or your mortgage is very, very hard, especially now. Anybody who has decided they're going to go out and spend their money on going to a a show or a quiz night or buying a book, you owe it to them to do your very best and give them value for money because fucking hell, spending money is not easy, you know. So, So, yeah, it is really important to make sure your audience are happy. That's not a small thing. I think it's a really hugely important thing. Well, it sounds fantastic. Some amazing stuff still to come. Uh, A really captivating and interesting chat. Thank you so much for your time, Andy Nyman. Thank you for chatting to Scarred for Life. I have absolutely loved it, fellas. Thank you. Well, that's it for another week. Uh, Thank you again to Andy Nyman. We'll be back next week with another special guest sharing their deepest, darkest fears. And as ever, we love hearing from you at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, Scarred for Life book on Instagram, or join the conversation on our Scarred for Life Facebook page. You've been listening to Scarred for Life, a stellar content production edited by Stephen Brotherstone. The title music is Scarred for Life by The Soulless Party. Thank you for joining us. And remember, do have nightmares. We'll see you next week. 